Hey, it's Josh. Before we get into the episode, I wanted to let you all know that the Vermont Public Spring Membership Drive has arrived. Donations from folks like you make everything we do here possible. If you want to help support our people-powered journalism, be sure to make a donation in any amount by March 16th by going to bravelittlestate.org donate. And as always, thank you for your support. Thanks to Vita for their support of Brave Little State. Since 1974, Vita has helped Vermont businesses grow and thrive. From agriculture to energy, startups to family companies. Find solutions that fit your business. Visit VEDA.org to start your next chapter today. And Sunset Lake CBD, a farmer-owned business crafting CBD products right here in Vermont. Learn more about their sustainable farming practices, delivery options, and how to support local farmers at sunsetlakecbd.com. From Vermont Public Radio, this is Brave Little State. Every day at noon, at a large dairy farm in central Vermont, Gregorio bikes from the farmhouse dorms over to the main milking barn. Noon is when his 12-hour shift starts. He births calves almost every day and helps in the milking parlor. He gets an hour-long break around dinner time, and then it's back on again until midnight. That's his schedule six days a week. It's a 72-hour work week. Gregorio came to Vermont from Veracruz, Mexico, four years ago. He says when he first started working on the dairy, it was exhausting. The work, well, at first, it was really difficult. Long hours and tough physical labor. And in the parlor, the shouting at the cows to move them, and it's difficult. I got used to it. It took me about a year to get used to it. We're not using Gregorio's last name to protect his identity. We're not identifying the farm where he works either. That's because Gregorio is working here without authorization. Further south, at Harlow Farm in Westminster, you can usually find Gerald Berry on the dock. I'm the dock boss. <laughs> or, or the manager for the docks. The dock is where Gerald works with the organic veggies that come in off the Harlow fields. He chills them down and packs them for storage or shipping out to the farm's many clients. Um, Black River outcome are old food and we have Upper Valley and we have Price Chapel. You know, those are like our big chains. Gerald is from Old Harbor, Jamaica. And unlike Gregorio, he's here with permission. He has a special visa to work in Vermont from May to November. It's called an H-2A visa. You know, it's a seasonal thing, so you go back home and maybe you might have a little small job, but maybe the pay is not that much, so you might come here. So, you know, the exchange rate, you, you might get just a little more. Both Gerald and Gregorio are part of the labor force that keeps many of Vermont's farms running. Papers or no, the people who do this work are often lumped together in that broad category known as migrant workers, even though it'd be more accurate to call the people who live here year-round immigrants, not migrants. And if you drink Vermont milk or eat Vermont vegetables or apples, it's very possible you have people like them to thank. But do you know any?
Welcome to Brave Little State, VPR's people-powered journalism podcast. I'm Angela Evansy. This is a show about curiosity, where we answer your questions about Vermont. This month, a question from Hannah Linder Finley of Westminster West. What is it like to be a migrant worker in Vermont? Hannah asked this question because she realized there was a whole part of Vermont's story that she just doesn't know much about. I grew up in Vermont and I never thought about migrant workers here. There's a lot of things I I wonder about. To help Hannah out, we're going to hang out on some Vermont farms with people who cross the U.S. border through a legal checkpoint and those who cross the border in secret. And our goal is simple get a sense of what their lives are like. We have support from the VPR Journalism Fund. Welcome. Just so we're clear, this episode is not meant to be an exhaustive account of Vermont's migrant labor economy or its challenges or shortcomings. Instead, we're just going to meet a few people. And you're going to hear pretty quickly that being a, quote, migrant worker is not a one-size-fits-all experience. John Gooden who also works at Harlow Farm, doesn't even like that word, migrant. No, sir, for a migrant, it's come like you run away and you have nowhere to stay. They, they give us a little piece of paper. That's if the cops stop us on the road, can show the paper and say, oh, these guys are legal. Now, John has one of those H-2A visas. And as long as he doesn't stay past its expiration date, he's on solid legal ground. People who are working here without authorization aren't so secure, especially these days. My colleague Kathleen Masterson covers immigration for VPR, and she's going to pick it up here. It's not as if life as an immigrant was easy under President Obama. At times, he was called deporter-in-chief. But in the last few years of his administration, deportations decreased as the policy shifted to focus on, quote, felons, not families. Now that trend is reversing. Anyone who illegally crosses the border will be detained until they are removed out of our country and back to the country from which they came. These are the deported, the repatriated, or as President Trump calls them. These are bad dudes. We're getting the bad ones out. A new report showing immigration arrests spiking more than 32 percent under President Trump's watch. Wow. This shift wasn't lost on our question asker, Hannah. It's become, you know, a much more present issue, I feel like, in the last few months. In March, Vermont passed a law designed to keep state and local police from helping with this federal crackdown. Here's what Governor Phil Scott said about the bill. The fear and anxiety that many are facing, whether it's in the agricultural community or whether it's in other parts of the state, is real. And uh, we seek to calm those fears and alleviate that. That same month, Immigration and Customs Enforcement, or ICE, arrested three immigration activists in Burlington. The state is making a contingency plan in the event that large numbers of migrant workers get deported. But so far, Vermont farmers haven't seen any deportation rates. Recent estimates suggest there are around 1,400 foreign-born Latino workers and their families here. And the people we spoke with made anywhere from $10 to $12 an hour. One of them, Gregorio, who we met at the beginning of the episode, says people in his community are on edge right now. Some are scared to go out in public to go grocery shopping or even to answer a knock at the door. Yes, there's some fear now. Before, no, but now, yes. It's 10.30 a.m. on a Friday morning, and Gregorio is still groggy-eyed with sleep. He checks the soccer scores on his smartphone before he heads into his next 12-hour shift. 
Pachuca. He lives with six co-workers in an old farmhouse right next to the dairy barn. Inside, it feels a bit like a college frat house, except no one here has much time for fraternizing. Here, it's all work. The entryway is full of well-worn rubber boots, and there are work garments hanging to dry on the porch. The living room windows are covered with dark fabric to block the light, because many in the house work night shifts. There's a TV, a dartboard, and a couch covered in laundry and several guitars. Nothing here came easy. When he was 20, Gregorio spent $4,500 to cross the Mexican border. He walked for a week to get to a safe house in Tucson, Arizona. That was four years ago. Now he's here, on this farm in central Vermont, spending his early 20s working 12-hour shifts six days a week. I'd like to leave to play soccer, but when I'm free, the others are working, and when others are free, I'm working. So it's only on Saturday afternoons when I get to play soccer. Saturdays are his days off. Saturdays, I don't do anything on the farm. I'm just here at the house, listening to music, talking to my mom on the phone, sometimes, not every week. (laughs) Overall, Gregorio says he likes living in Vermont. The money is way more than he could make in Mexico, and he says he's grown accustomed to the daily routines. But he says it's hard being stuck on the farm. We're only here to work. It's isolating to always have to be here at the ranch. The situation doesn't permit us to visit cities here in the U.S., to interact with society. But I think it's part of our life, to be isolated. Gregorio says he's made peace with this. But it's worth it, because many friends of my age in Mexico, they have family, they have kids, and it's really hard. They don't have money. They tell me, you're here. You have good opportunities to make a house, to do things. Yes, but also, I sacrificed everything to be here. They have nothing because they haven't sacrificed anything. I sacrificed my youth. There are many things I'd like back at home. Fishing, parties, fun. During all this, I stayed here. Gregorio tells me it's too stressful to invest much in the life in the U.S. He could lose everything in a second. We're illegals. So in any moment, immigration could detain me and send me to Mexico. Instead, he lives life so that if he's deported, the only thing he'll lose is the job, and the only thing he'll take with him are his clothes. But just a half mile down the road, Gregorio's co-worker, Francisco, is invested here. But he didn't expect that to happen when he first came to the U.S. When I left my country, my plan was to spend a year in the U.S. I was studying to be a lawyer in a Mexican university. I wanted to be independent from my family. I wanted to work for one year and to save enough money to finish the three years I had left in school. But one year turned into ten, and instead of practicing law, Francisco is working on the same farm as Gregorio. Francisco isn't his real name. We've changed it to protect his privacy. Part of the reason Francisco is still here is that he met someone. Ten years ago, shortly after arriving in rural New York, where he found work on a dairy farm, he fell in love and started a family. It was never my plan to form a family here, but now I have a family, and that's one of the reasons I'm here, why I stayed. Francisco has an eight-year-old daughter now, and he feels pretty comfortable in Vermont. But it was a long road to get to this point. Francisco says the hardest thing about coming to a new country and learning an entirely new job 
was doing all of that without knowing English. When you don't understand the language, you feel isolated. You feel isolated because all the owners, the people we worked for, they can't explain anything to you. They can't tell you anything or ask you anything. And we also couldn't communicate with them. The situation made me feel isolated, even depressed. Imagine showing up to your first day of work and not understanding your boss. Francisco did eventually teach himself some English, but he still wanted to do this interview in Spanish. He says when he first got here and was living in rural New York, he sometimes felt disrespected, but he heard worse things about Vermont. I had a friend who had been here longer than me. He always said that when people went to stores in Vermont, in Bennington to be specific, ICE would grab people from there. They picked people up in stores, or on one occasion they grabbed someone from a hospital. So he gave the impression that Vermont was a difficult place for immigrants to live. That if you were in Vermont, you would surely get grabbed by immigration and sent back to Mexico. And it turned out that happened to Francisco, too. Almost. Here's how it happened. Even though Bennington had a bad reputation, Francisco ended up moving there. Because that's where his girlfriend lived. She's his wife now. She's a Vermonter. He met her at the wire transfer company where she worked. So one day in 2009, Francisco says the Bennington police came to their apartment. What happened next wasn't uncommon in those early years of the Obama administration. We only have Francisco's account of what happened that day. But basically, he says the police came because they gotten a call from the neighbors who were concerned that his daughter was crying. Nothing came of that, but the police told Francisco they had a few more questions for him and wanted to take him down to the station. It would just take 45 minutes, they said. He agreed. At the station, the police questioned him about his immigration status and then locked him in a cell for about three hours. Francisco says he later realized three hours is exactly how long it takes for ICE officials to drive down from their office in Swanton. ICE arrived and then brought him back to Swanton for more questioning. Ultimately, they placed him in a detention facility in Buffalo, New York. This month and a half was, I think, the most difficult of all my life. At the time, his daughter was two, and Francisco knew if he were deported, he would be forbidden from re-entering the U.S. for 10 years. So I was thinking what would happen in this 10-year window. Obviously, I could bring my daughter to Mexico, but it's not the same as seeing her every day, just two or three times a year. So that's what killed me mentally, emotionally, but I couldn't know what was going to happen. In that month, I only slept one or two hours a night because I was thinking about what might happen, and I couldn't sleep. In the end, Francisco got help from an immigration lawyer and letters of support from the community, and a judge stayed his deportation. And even though Francisco is married now, and he says he's authorized to work here, he still doesn't have the same rights as a U.S. citizen. Yeah, I'm secure. I can never be 100% secure, because with the new president, anything can happen. I still always act with caution in everything I do, because we immigrants, they have us in a position where whatever error that we might commit, that means you're not good. You're not good people. So I always try to be. How should I say this? As careful as possible in everything I do. So to put it simply, you always have to be an example, I suppose. 
But for some at the same farm, being an immigrant isn't as fraught with risk. Though Marseille faced a different set of challenges when he first arrived in central Vermont. The farm manager came up to me and asked me how I wanted to be referred to. I said, I prefer that you call me a man rather than a woman. And they said, yeah, well, the work here is long and it's for men. And I said to myself, I like the work. Marseille says he was born in a woman's body, but his identity is as a man. He says he's always been open with his family about this, and they've accepted and loved him. And I've always done men's work. It doesn't seem like a chore to me. I practically spent my youth on a ranch with my parents and my sisters, so I'm not scared of the work here. I like it. And unlike many other Vermont dairy workers born in Mexico, Marseille actually has legal authorization to work in the U.S. for the whole year, not just seasonally. He says that some of his friends have speculated that he was granted authorization because of his sexual identity. My friends told me maybe it's because here they help people of my sex, of my preferences, you could say. They say maybe that's why the immigration officials gave me the permit, because in my country it's not accepted. Well, just barely. Whereas here in the U.S., it's more accepted. So perhaps this is why they gave me the papers. That's what many people have told me. Regardless, he wasn't going to pass up the opportunity. He says he likes living in Vermont, the clean air, being in nature, working with animals. Like Gregorio, Marseille came to the U.S. to support family back home. His two younger siblings were studying in school. I miss my family, but they're the reason I'm here. When you live in a rural area, it's hard to get higher-level learning. So I'm doing this for my siblings. I'm here to help them have the chance to study what they want. Marseille also has a partner back home. He calls her his wife, and they talk every day. Since I get to talk to her when I finish working, she's there on the video calls. So I don't miss her too much. Maybe you miss your family a little bit more than if they were there in person, but not as much because we talk every day. Then there are times when suddenly you get sad for a few moments, but outside of that, it's all good. For now, Marseille likes working in Vermont and will try to get his authorization permit renewed in September. But for Gregorio and Francisco, their plans and their hearts are back in Mexico. Gregorio is sending money to a savings account to help his parents' coffee farm back home. And Francisco says when their daughter grows up, he and his wife want to move there. It took six years to get used to Vermont and to leave Mexico behind. And still, I always carry it in my heart. Those profiles were produced by Kathleen Masterson. You can find more of her immigration reporting at bravelittlestate.org. We're going to return now to Westminster, where Gerald Barry works, with that H-2A visa from May to November. They just say, I work on the dock, so, you know, I'm the dock boss. Gerald is 56, and this is his 18th year at Harlow Farm. But he remembers his first day like it was yesterday. We join here and we meet Paul and we have a little get-together he and Paul and his wife, so that was like on a Thursday. Paul is Paul Harlow, a third-generation farmer running his family's operation. When Gerald and five other guys from Jamaica came that year, this was 2000, it was the first time Harlow Farm had hired foreign workers through the H-2A program. So we start out in the field on the Friday morning. With me, don't know nothing about, like, vegetable farming. But I'm willing to learn. 
Gerald had been working at an apple orchard in Maine before that, which is why he didn't know anything about growing vegetables. We start out and start to hoe and cut lettuce and pick kale and all those stuff, so we just work our way in. Some of the produce was totally new to him, like kale and collard. I don't even know if we grow kale and collard back home. You know, I don't know. And almost two decades later, he still hasn't tasted them. I never have it. You've never tasted kale? No, no kale and collard, I never really had <laughs> I mean, guys, there are guys have it and they say it's good, you know, but I never really. There are other veggies girls won't eat. Yeah, celery, rutabaga, and all those stuff. <laughs> yeah, I never taste those stuff. Since Gerald's first season, the crew of men from Jamaica has grown to 17 people. And just to give you some context, in the 2015 fiscal year, 650 foreign workers came to Vermont under this H-2A program. Now, over the years at Harlow Farm, Gerald has worked his way up to dock boss, though everyone on the farm calls him policeman, police for short. I was like a real policeman in the past, years ago. Yeah, way back when. Maybe it was that job with law enforcement, or maybe it's his years of experience on the farm. But Gerald does have a certain authority to him. For example... Um, Monday! Water! While he's showing me around the dock, he notices that a water tank is almost empty. So he shouts out to a co-worker who's watering by the greenhouse. That's why I always tell people that's why I'm on the dock, because I always notice things, you know. But a job on the dock comes with great responsibility. It's Gerald's job to make sure Harlow's clients get what they ordered, in the right amounts, and definitely no damaged produce. The workday starts at 7 a.m. The first delivery trucks go out as early as 8, so Gerald has to make sure everything is prepped ahead of time. Then our ladies keep coming in, kale coming in, colored and lots of nada, you know? Things keep coming in, so I have to get them cool. There's a big hydrovac for cooling the veggies down right when they come off the field, and a massive ice maker that fills four giant bins at a time. I get it cool, put it in the cooler, and date it, like some little labels like this. The cooler is a walk-in the size of a house. Oh, it's huge. On average, Harlow ships out 500 cases of veggies every day. And managing everything takes a lot of planning. Or, as Gerald puts it, looking forward for the other day. I always, always looking forward for the other day and try to know what's going on from the evening so I can get myself prepared. The late afternoon is for inventory so Paul can know how the day went. And at the end of the day? At the end of the day, well, to tell you the truth, I wouldn't say my dear hen, no. I just cool off, yeah. Because even like finish work, maybe sitting down, playing to Jamaican music, having a beer, maybe something still down here to do. I always think about work. Two, three o'clock, I always think about work. Because sometimes, some things just flash across my mind and I was wondering if I really um, remember to do it. I like to double check. 
It's easy for Gerald to check on the dock in the middle of the night because he lives right above it. He and seven other guys share an apartment with a communal kitchen. Two stoves, two bathrooms, and no air conditioning. And when you live at your job, there's not much separation between work and life. Well, yeah, yeah. Paul is a good guy to us, so there is nothing toward for me to do for him. No. It's not all the while it's about money. You know, it's about appreciation. This is something Gerald says more than once. That even though he's working for Paul seven days a week for $12.38 an hour, the money isn't the only thing driving him. I mean, it's like income for us, but Paul is a good guy. So I personally try to help him out. Yeah. And I would say all of us try to help him out because he's a good guy to us. He, he treats us like, you know, his own kids. When Gerald got married to his wife, Pam, in 2014, Paul flew to Jamaica for the wedding. You can't beat that, you know. That is a big appreciation. Because a lot of people say, hey, boy, you must be a good guy to your boss because he fly down for your wedding and stuff, you know. And, you know. He said a, a speech, you know. He gave a speech. He gave a speech for me, yeah. He tried to let them know that before I come here, things that he used to have to do, now we can relax. I feel so good to, you know, to know that he's there, you know. Paul pays Gerald between $600 and $800 a week. And Gerald says that money is helpful, but it's not like he gets back to Jamaica and has a fortune. He says things are expensive there, too. You might go home with some money, but at the end of the day, what you're going to spend, you know, it's like it does take back a lot out of it. But there is one big life purchase that Gerald was able to make in 2013. I bought a house. My family is more happy, and I'm more happy, you know, so I can't beat that. I don't think I could buy anything that is better than that. Gerald has nine kids, although just two of them are with Pam. And when he's home in Jamaica, he works at a grocery shop that Pam runs. When he's in Vermont, he keeps in touch with her over the phone and the app WhatsApp. He says life here is different, for sure. It's not like Jamaica. You know, where in Jamaica, like, let's say you get off right now, you maybe could go at a bar and sit down and play some dominoes or... You could go to the field and play a little football or whatever, you know, whatever. But here you get off work, you don't have nowhere to go. You guys just stay here. So you say, you drink two beer, you play music and talk to your family back home and you go to sleep. You know, right. That's it. So does that get boring? Oh, no. No. If you, if you want to get boring, you can be boring. And that is when you, you start to think about home. But if you're not thinking about home, you're not going to be bored. You know, you got to just know that you're here. So you can't be here and set your mind on home. Like, oh boy, if I would be back home, I would be playing some dominoes with friends. No, you're going to get bored. You got to be here and just know that you're here. Set your mind on here, right? Gerald says there's nowhere to go when he gets off work. But there is something he and his coworkers do every week on Friday evenings when they get paid. 
they go grocery shopping. And unlike immigrants on dairies who are nervous to even go to the store right now, these guys roll into Bellows Falls in a mini school bus that Gerald says everybody recognizes. One, because it's full of Jamaicans, and two, because the letters S and H have been carefully removed from the word school. The cool bus. It was cool, but we just take off that and the cool bus. Because, you know, cool run-ins, that, right, so it's just the cool bus. Everybody loves it. <laughs> yeah. I hitch a ride on the cool bus one Friday as Gerald and about 10 other guys make the rounds to stock up for the week. And when I say rounds, I mean rounds. We stop at eight stores. First is Rite Aid. Gerald hops out all by himself, and we leave him there and drive up the road to the second store, a local market called Lee Size. Inside, the men all head for the meat section. They clear out a shelf of chicken legs, 10-pound bags for 59 cents a pound. And you pay. <laughs> I fall into step with a guy named Dane, who also orders five pounds of pork butt. Hello, five pounds. These are provisions for him and his coworker Raymond to cook together during the week. While the butcher is weighing the meat, Gerald shows up in the store. Did he walk here? That's what I'm asking. <laughs> Dane figures he hitched a ride here. There are so many people in town who know him. That guy's been knowing in Vermont, you know. The meat costs twenty-two dollars and forty-eight cents. Dane pays in cash. He and the others load their bags into the cool bus, and then it's on to the third store, across the Connecticut River in Walpole, New Hampshire, the discount food warehouse. In here, everyone makes a beeline for the corned beef. They clear out that shelf, too. Then Dane walks the aisle slowly, picking stuff up, looking at the price, putting it down. He eventually gets some fruit juice, white flour, dry beans, and Lipton extra noodle soup, among other things. $14.84. Across the street is Mr. G's Liquidation Center, the fourth store. Dane picks up some Lipton tea and more fruit juice. At almost every store, Dane separates his purchases into two payments. Stuff for him and stuff for his family back home. Fifth is State Line Grocery, and sixth is the Family Dollar. Ketchup, instant coffee creamer, soap, peppermints. At this point, Dane is paying in small bills and change. I just need one more penny. Thank you. And then here's both of your receipts. As we pull away in the cool bus, everyone waves goodbye to a kid in the parking lot. Finally, we stop at a shopping center. I lose track of Dane in the Ocean State job lot and head into Shaw's with Gerald. He's buying dried beans, instant soup, and a 12-pack of Budweiser. When he's checking out, one of the cashiers recognizes him. What's up? How you doing, man? I'm doing all right. You doing good? Yeah. Bradley Talent has worked at Harlow Farm in the summer, like a lot of high schoolers in the area. He's clearly very excited to see Gerald. I'll see you around, my all friend. Right. Yeah, man. All right. Go take care, man. You too. <laughs> At this point, we've been shopping for about two hours, and the cool bus is packed with groceries. Not my box. But no one seems in a rush to get back. A few guys light up cigarettes in the parking lot, while others just sit in the bus and chat. It's a long shopping day. I can tell. Yeah, yeah. Junior, who's been working at Harlow Farm as long as Gerald has, tells me that this is actually a short shopping trip. If you should be like with us next week in Claremont, then it will be a longer shopping day. Even longer than this? Yeah. There's a Walmart in Claremont, which is also across the river in New Hampshire. 
Sometimes the men buy dresses for their wives there. All told, Junior says the trip can take four or five hours. So actually, when we make the money here, we leave most of it here. <laughs> Eventually, the men will drive home and park the cool bus behind the dock. They'll each make a couple trips up the wooden steps to their apartment, unloading their food. Then dinner, maybe a little TV, and up again in the morning for work. Things have changed at Harlow Farm in the years that Junior and Gerald and the others have been here. The operation has gotten bigger, and Paul Harlow says that because the Jamaican crew keeps everything running so well, he can actually hire more local workers. Junior says he's changed too. It's good to learn what we learn here because it's helped you to be a changed person when you're at home. How so? Because um, sometimes back then you look at people by the jobs they do. But now because we are working here and we are working in the dirt, even sometimes back home you see the guys in the garbage truck, you know, like, oh, gross. No, nothing like that. That is all disappear from us. So you don't judge people anymore? No, 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 no. We just like upset people for the jobs they do. Yeah. We respect their jobs. Yeah. Yeah, it's a good thing. I learn a lot here. Thanks so much for listening to the show this month. The crew at Harlow Farm is going to be throwing down for their annual Jamaican Independence Celebration on Sunday, August 6th. You can find details at bravelittlestate.org. While you're there, you can also submit a question of your own and vote on the one you want us to tackle next. Brave Little State is a production of Vermont Public Radio. We have support from the VPR Journalism Fund and from VPR members. If you like this show, consider becoming one. Editing this month by Lynn McRae and John Dillon. Our theme music is by Ty Gibbons. Other music in this episode by Blue Dot Sessions and Poddington Bear. Music selection by Liam Elder Connors and engineering support from Chris Albertine. Special thanks this month to Chris Urban, Sam Evans-Brown, Jonathan Butler, Joe Tomecki, and Will Ricker. I'm Angela Evansee. We'll be back next month. And until then, remember, be brave, ask questions. (laughs) At a time when information continues to come at us faster and faster, sometimes you need to hit pause and rewind. NPR's Throughline takes you back in time to the source of the news stories filling your feed. Find NPR's Throughline wherever you get your podcasts.